Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn. This is not a proper episode of Circle of Willis. Instead, I'm presenting here some bonus material from my conversation with Hal Movius because, because I think his story of doing graduate school is super interesting and worth a listen. There, there's no shortage of prescriptive advice for those seeking to get into graduate school in the sciences or for those interested in a career in academia. But uh, And you're not going to get much of that here. What you'll get instead is something much rarer, in my opinion, which is real wisdom, provided not explicitly, but rather uh, sort of by example. This very thing has been, for me, part of the joy of my friendship with Hal. Every time I talk to him, it seems like, I learn something new about how to sort of approach my life, or my science, or my career. And it's really, it's just by attending to his stories. When he, when he reflects on things, he almost always does so with a mind to sort of figuring things out. You know, for example, pay particular attention to what Hal has to say about single-mindedness here, and ponder its potential role in academic success. You know, Hal didn't really prepare for graduate school the way most of us do. He had this neat idea, and he wrote about it in his graduate school applications. He hadn't been a lab coordinator. He hadn't specifically groomed himself for a graduate school in psychology or anything else. He really, he took a chance, and so did a few potential graduate advisors here and there, including at the University of Arizona, where I was headed as well. Then, you know, while he was in graduate school, he simply... I mean, though not blithely, I wouldn't say. I mean, he's, he just sort of rejected the truism that your single-mindedness has to manifest as a kind of, kind of punishing commitment to your work that precludes any joy in your life or exploring other possibilities, for example. And uh, this is a kind of attitude, an ability to see your life as a journey made up of decisions that, that really maybe aren't as fraught as you might think. I mean, boiled down... The message is really pretty simple. It's, you have other options than just being a professor. But how often do we see examples of this attitude? I mean, we see examples of people doing things, but not that sort of, that sort of attitude that may increase the quality of your life while you're getting trained. I mean, in graduate school, I was anxious enough that, that really just watching how live this perspective sort of blew my mind. And sometimes, sometimes it still does. Anyway, I don't want to tell Hal's story for him. Folks, here's more Hal Movius just telling the story of his graduate school years, what led him to science, how he handled his graduate training, and how he decided to apply that training outside of academia. I came from an academic family, but I really wasn't interested in academia. In fact, I was really interested in rock and roll. That's what I wanted to do, and I dropped yeah. out of college for a year. Played with some pretty cool musicians and, and yeah. hitchhiked around the world. And By the time I was done with college, I was convinced I wouldn't go back to school anytime soon. And But... After trying music for a few years and realizing that the life of a musician is not a great life and until you make it sort of <laughs> yeah. really, really big, first of all, and second of all, that I wasn't really constitutionally 
equipped to be an artist. I wasn't single-minded enough, I think, to be a good artist. I think that you is mean, the... Like, you mean like obsessed? I mean single-minded. Like, I'll tell you a story. Like, I was sitting once with my friend Peter Kane, who's a great blues guitar player and singer, country blues. And I asked, we were at a Dunkin' Donuts, and I asked him, he was stirring his coffee, and I said, Pete, what would you do if you couldn't play guitar? Because I was thinking a lot about that. I was thinking, oh, maybe I should go to law school or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it didn't fill me with any joy, but I sort of had these vague notions in my head that I should do something else. And he's stirring his coffee and he says, what do you mean? And I said, I don't know. I mean, like you got in a car accident or something or you just you just couldn't play guitar anymore. He said, I don't know, man. I never thought about that. Uh, and I, yeah, I had this right. like moment of going, wow, okay. Okay, so that's that's something. Like I'm not that way. <clears throat> and then I had a really close friend, my best friend from college, Dave Perini, who passed away of cancer. And I really, I had like one of those moments and I was 26 and I thought, what am I doing, you know? And I lucked into a job. I lucked into my first real job that wasn't just like a job for making money at an outfit called End Dispute. It was right at the dawn of the mediation, alternative dispute resolution movement. And I was working with all these professors and the former general counsel to the Peace Corps and really an amazing group of people. And I was the young guy running around on all these different projects, you know, making phone calls and scheduling meetings and, right. so, you know, but I really got a taste suddenly of like, you know, I would literally get on the phone with the governor of Rhode Island and say, okay, here's where we're at on the Superfund site uh, mediation. Jeez, you know, I can't even imagine that. at such a young age. Well, I had no idea what I was doing. I was terrified half the time, but I thought it was pretty cool. And as I did that, and as I kept reading in my own weird, sort of random way, different psychologists and social thinkers. I remember I was reading like Neil Postman and a whole bunch of different That's people. That's good stuff. Yeah, and. Um, and I started to notice that although certain kinds of disputes, you could really, it really made sense to use mediation rather than a court, you know, going to court or using some other really inefficient system. But there were certain kinds of disputes where people had really deeply felt instincts and values, you know, where if you're talking about the death penalty or abortion or <clears throat> tribal lands or, you know, whatever it is that... You start, as John Haidt would say much later, like, you know, the, that's sort of the politics of the sacred, you know? Yeah. And I was... attachments and your, yeah, your yeah. deep emotional feelings. Or something. I couldn't really articulate it, but I just thought, this is really interesting. And I ca came from a family with Republicans on my mom's side and Democrats on my dad's side and a lot of, you know, conflict. Uh -huh. And But being really, becoming really close to my my Republican grandfather, who was a really sweet guy, and even after having grown up in Massachusetts, you know, spending summers with my grandfather in California, and I, you know, it just struck me there's something going on here where people really are coming from different places, and if psychologists could understand the psychological predictors or correlates of these deeply held basic political instincts, that it would help to figure out how to frame disputes and mediate disputes. And and this was what? This is like 1994, 
Well, three. I mean, this was 90, or no, like nine, 91, 92 Holy when I was shit. applying you to were, graduate you school. You were very much ahead of your time with, with this stuff. Well, no, that's, that's so the thing. Hot now. Nobody was interested. So I, <laughs> I was so naive. I mean, I applied to, I remember having this pile of brochures from like, all these different departments, you know, yeah. including like 60 psychology department brochures piled up on the dining room table in the apartment I was renting and trying to figure out like, you know, there was no web back then. It wasn't like you no. went to somebody's department page. No, and There was literally no web back then. No, that was you, still several years away. You really had to dig to figure out like who are the professors in this department and what do they yeah. study? And is there somebody that I want to go study Hit the stacks. With? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So eventually I kind of, I realized a few things and this is, I'm almost, I'm still embarrassed saying this, but when I applied, you know, that what you should do when you apply to graduate school is apply to go work with the person who you think could be the best mentor and who has the most productive lab and can help you land a job and all that stuff. It's very, right. it's an apprenticeship model. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea that that was true. <laughs> None whatsoever. I thought it was like applying to college or something where you just sort of filled out an application, wrote an essay, took some tests. Right. And I thought... And had more classes or something or... Uh, yeah, or something. That's like, so funny because you do come from such an academic background. I mean, your grandfather is very, very famous. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, I do. But again, I was sort of... <laughs> I didn't think I was cut out of that cloth at all. I see. Right. I mean, because you were a rock and roll guy. Yeah, and I was a sensation seeker and curious, and I wanted to do everything and see everything and yeah. experience everything. Yeah. And and then when I got this cool job, I thought, wow, you know, there are these disputes all over the world, and it's only going to get worse. And maybe there's a way I can put my shoulder to the wheel here, but I really have to understand this stuff first. And I didn't think I could just stick around and watch other people do mediation and eventually get where I needed to be. So, so that was the thing. And I, and I knew I needed to be in a program where there were enough conservative undergraduates potentially that I could study ideological differences. And I also, that's interesting. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that. Yeah, it was on. It was definitely on my mind because, especially, I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at that time, and it would be you know you would have found yeah. sort of like a few random Tweedy yeah. living underground Rockefeller Republicans yeah. sort of walking around, you know, who would be considered like you know to the center of the Democratic Party today or right, something. But, right, right. But anyway, so that was on my mind, and then the other thing yeah. was I didn't think I would make it through four or five years of graduate school in a cold climate. So, so I applied to like, you know, UCLA and, yeah. you know, I don't know, all these, Texas. And I, I applied to like 14 programs and they all rejected me except, you know, because That's... I wrote this because I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what I, yeah, anyway, I didn't write good essays or do anything that I was supposed to do. And, but I, but Jeff Greenberg at Jeff Ter Greenberg, Jeff Greenberg, Terror Management Theory. Yeah. So Jeff saw something in my ragged, confused essay and said, "Gee, <laughs> this guy's interested in like worldviews and what drives that, and you know maybe I can do something with him." You know. <laughs> but anyway, he he, you know, I went there and I went to talk to some folks in Santa Barbara, and then I had I don't know there were two or three places that were sort of interested in. But Jeff, I went to see Jeff, and I actually really loved, I mean, that's when terror management theory had just come out. Yeah, 
I thought it was so interesting and weird and cool. Very Freudian as well, by well, way of Ernest Becker. That's right, in the sense of that there are these unconscious motives and emotions yeah. that you know might shape in really important ways a lot of our cognitive structures and beliefs. So anyway, I went to, yeah, I can't, so that's, I'm taking a really long time to answer your question, no, but that's great. how I got to grad school. Once I got to grad school, I, to make a long story short, I realized that I was, that at that time, social psychology was very cognitive. Even the terror management stuff was framed in a very cognitive way. Yeah. And I was really interested in emotion and personality and interpersonal processes. So I applied to the clinical program and I got in, which amazed me. And I started doing clinical work and studying clinical processes, which I really loved. Yeah. I mean, because really at that time there was no, I guess there were Jerry Clore, there were a few people doing the cognitive structure of emotion, yep. you know, Russell and Clore, a few other people, but... Lisa Feldman Barrett. Yep. Um, but not a lot of, I mean, emotion was not on the map really. In yeah, the early it 90s. was, it was not the way it is now. I mean, but, but you were just, that was just about the time that things like emotion regulation was right. starting to take off. So yep. James Gross has come in on the scene and, yep. and that was explosive. Yep. That really, I think did a lot to, to reassert emotion per se as a, as a domain of, of research. For sure. And I got, and then I met John Allen, and John roped me into doing a really fun study on dissociative identity disorder, where right. we tried to induce I remember multiple that. personalities awesome. and measured their EKG and event-related potentials. And anyway, that's a whole other side story. But we published a paper on that, and then I got really interested in vagal tone. I was looking for something that might be a physiological marker or predictor of different. Political attitudes? Political attitudes, cognitive style, emotional style. I thought that that, you know, that was starting to look like a pretty interesting and important marker for a lot of things, vagal tone was. Yeah, it was, the, it, was the, it was the underlying causal agent for a lot of political attitudes. I remember talking with you about this a lot Yeah, during that time. Yeah, and I was looking for a way to, to graduate. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because the other thing that was going on for me was I was working and, summers in Boston. Yeah. Well, so, the, okay, no, the working summers in Boston. Can I just make this one? I want to I bracket this because this is one of the things that I think is most fascinating about you and what most fascinated me about you while we were in graduate school is that every summer when you would vanish for the summer, you would just go away. What were you doing during those, those summers? I was working for... Uh, a search consulting firm in Boston by again, by, by serendipity almost. I, yeah. I got through my first year of grad school. I should say that I also, <laughs> I was still doing music and I had a little, a song that was in a feature film and I flew out to Hollywood. What's the song? Oh, it's just a, it was just a little, literally this is what it was. A friend said, we have like a Rolling Stone song in the film we're editing, but we'll never be able to afford the rights. But could you write a song and record it that sounds kind of like the Rolling Stones or, you know, like a beer commercial <laughs> driving down the highway, a kind of yeah. rock and roll song. Yeah. So I was going to go do some recording anyway. And uh, with a guy named Mike Rivard, who's a bass player in Boston. And we went and did, we did this in like three hours. I mean, just uh -huh. this one thing. And it's... 
What movie is it in? It's in a terrible movie called Dominion. Dominion. Starring Jeffrey Gage and Brad Johnson. But um, anyway, all of which is to say I was sort of like, I was struggling a lot in graduate school. I didn't think, I wasn't sure I was going to make it through. And at the end of my first year, I just felt like I had to get back to a kind of, I had to get a culture fix. Yeah. And Tucson is a cool place, but it was not, there was not a ton going on, especially back then. Except for graduate school. Now, this is the, this yeah. is the reason why I think this is so fascinating because we've talked about this before. You don't leave and work <laughs> in some other yeah, domain and graduate. You obsessively and single mindedly, single mindedly again, work on your graduate program during well, the summers. Well, I know. So and why didn't is, you do that? I'm sure this is why they regret taking me, but. Be, partly because when I started graduate school, I was 29. I'd had a bunch of real jobs already. And I recognized that every year I was in graduate school was a huge opportunity cost in terms of income yes. or some other gaining in some other career. And so that was part of it. Part of it was just my basic survival instinct and I and, and a desire to make more money than I was getting paid in my heretic i know i know so that was what it was like but f honestly if i'm honest it was just like i gotta get out of here i gotta go back to boston yeah i have a lot of friends there it's not as blazing hot it's not as hot maybe i can get a job and so i showed up i started putting out feelers and somebody said oh yeah i have a friend who's maybe looking for somebody to do some make some phone calls you know and i got uh -huh. a job at this cool at Auerbach Associates run by Judy Auerbach, who is still a real, a great mentor for me. And Judy kind of took me under her wing. And at that time, her clients were all universities and colleges and foundations and other not-for-profits. And she was conducting what's called retained search, where you, for a flat fee, you undertake the search for, let's say, the dean of a medical school. Right, right, right. And so you do the pro forma things like create the job. You interview people. You interview the old dean, the outgoing dean, or the other key stakeholders, academic leaders. You figure out what's the right way to describe the incoming, the new position. You right. Know, what are the upcoming challenges? But more importantly, you get on the phone and very discreetly... <laughs> call people who are already really happily employed doing other things and, and you whisper see in if, their ear you see if you can get them yeah right and you try to put together a a roster of say a half dozen really strong candidates who would be willing to come and interview with the search committee on the very hush hush and the, you also you know you take the 500 cvs that come in and you ah. you know whatever yeah anyway so that put me in this really weird position of literally being a graduate student and calling my own provost <laughs> <laughs> to talk about, to do a reference on somebody else. And, um, you know, I had to begin the call by saying, you know, in, in, in full disclosure, the I'm, way, I'm a graduate, I'm a graduate student, student in, in the Department of Psychology. <laughs> but right now I'm working at, you know, Auerbach Associates. So See, this is so fascinating to me. And it was fascinating to me then because you're already on a very, uh, I, I would say, a pretty radically different trajectory than than the overwhelming majority of graduate students that I see. See, I in, a, in a good way, I think. I think I had a feeling maybe because I came from an academic family, I don't know, but. 
or maybe partly from working with Judy and seeing what the leaders of universities were actually thinking about and struggling with, I had a feeling that the, the existing academic paradigm was not long for this world. Okay, that's it for the Hal Movius bonus materials. You know, maybe a bit, bit of a gloomy message at the end there, but I don't think so. I don't really think so. I mean, listen, times change, right? And times are indeed changing in academia. Maybe not all for the better, but that's why I find Hal's story sort of inspiring. There are other avenues, you see, other things to do with your training and expertise, things that are both maybe fulfilling and useful to the world. Anyway, I hope you found that as interesting as I did. And real quick, I just wanted to point out that I'm mixing up the music a little bit here for these bonus materials. That opening music at the beginning of this bonus episode, that was Hal Movius himself recording with his old band many years ago. And this music in the background right now, (laughs) that's me playing with my guitar, my baritone ukulele, (laughs) and GarageBand. What else? You know, <laughs> this music almost became the Circle of Willis theme song. So thank God for Tom Stopher, Gene Ruley, and their band, the New Drakes. Okay, that's all. See you at episode 10. Bye. Bye.